Bala, and we're trying to get an insight as to you know who who we are and what our goals are, what the mission is, and what actually happens to us in life, what happens to us before life, and what life's really all about, what is really at the core of the riddle that is that is our life here, uh, and certainly uh, to look at like what 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 impact does. Uh, or do our actions have? You know, I think that really at the core of the question of Kabbalah is trying to understand, you know, the deep insight behind human life, really. Uh, So I think it's it's appropriate to look a little bit about some statements that were taught in Jewish literature about who we are. So I just want to give a little introduction, very, very interesting statement that is written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, known by his acronym, the Ramchal. He wrote very famous books like Derech Hashem, The Way of God, which organizes Jewish philosophy and theology. A very, very famous book called Misilat Yesharim, Path of the Just, where he organizes Jewish ethics. Uh, and he also wrote a very small book called Derech Eitz Chaim, which means The Way of the Tree of Life. Now, if those words sound familiar, Tree of Life, we know that when Adam was put into the Garden of Eden, there was lots of trees and two special ones, one called the Tree of Life and one called the Tree of Knowledge, good and bad. And he, of course, made the fateful decision to opt for the Tree of Knowledge and our life and our misery is the product of that decision. But either way, what would have happened had he chosen the other tree, the way of life, uh, you know, the, the, tree of, the Tree of Life? Um, so that's... You know, but from the title of the book, it's really like, more like a pamphlet. The Way of the Tree of Life, it gets you a little bit of a sense as to the magnitude of, of the topic that he talks about. But in it, he writes a very, very short line, just one line, which he writes it almost matter-of-factly. This is just the way it is. He says, I found, I found one tactic, one strategy that is a core strategy that if you follow this, you'll be successful in every area of your life. It's like that one amazing trick, you know. Sounds like a little bit clickbaity, even though it was written in the early uh, 18th century. What is this one trick that if you follow it, you'll have all of Torah and all of meaning in life and all of purpose in life, everything, this one trick? What's this one trick? Meditation. To be with yourself, just you and the Almighty, and think. He says, think. Well, what should you think about? I don't know. What should I think about? So he says, I'll give you some examples to think about. He says, ask yourself questions, very broad questions, like, uh, mahu, which means, what are you? Hmm? What? Well, that's all he says, right? What are you? And he says, I, I think people should spend... Uh, no less than an hour a day doing this. Ask them the question, what are you? And he gives another example, what did King David and Abraham do that made the Almighty love them so much? Those are the two sample questions he gives that we should spend an hour a day. So if you do the math, we're talking about hundreds of hours of e- a year to think about what are you? And to us, it sounds, it sounds so crazy and preposterous. What do you mean, what am I? I'm, I'm I. I'm, I'm me. But can we really define what we are? What are we? What, what are we? What am I? That's, that's a hard question to answer. A soul. So you say soul, but what does a soul even mean? What does that even mean? So I think that's a very good starting point. Like, what are we? And once you understand what we are, the next step would be to understand, okay, so what's the purpose of me? Because if we are static, if we are just what we are and nothing can change, then there's no meaning, no purpose, no greatness, and no, you know, you can't become good or bad if you're static. But we know, we know this intuitively, even though we may, may not have spelled this all out, that we're conflicted. And because we're conflicted, therefore, we're put into kind of this mode, this world, this arena of change, of opportunity, where we can ascend to the greatest heights 
and we can descend to the lowest of lows, and thus there's meaning. We call that, by the way, free will. It means that man has a say. Man, I see man, I mean mankind, of course. Mankind has a say in determining their destiny. That, that's a big deal, even though we, we all know that's true. But if you really actually try to break it down to its smallest components, we don't really know what we are. And if we don't really know what we are, how can we expect to know what we ought to do? Because if you don't know what you are, you don't know what your mission is. If you don't know what your mission is, how can you possibly be successful in trying to accomplish that mission? So therefore, I think it's a good step to start to, to okay, what are we? So you said soul. I was going to say soul. A soul with a body or a body with a soul. Okay, soul and body. So what's a soul? A soul is the, the part that, of God. Um, that God gave us. But God doesn't have parts. So this well, is, well, it's a part of us that God gave us. Okay, but God gave us our body as well, right? God's the designer of both soul and body. What does that mean? <laughs> so, so I'm saying, like, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying, okay, let's try to see what, can, what do we know about the soul? What would happen if the soul existed in isolation? Like, what would that look like? If you just had a soul and you denuded it of the body, what would that be? Obviously, it's not something physical, but what would the characteristics of that entity be? How would it behave? How would it be motivated? What would, you know, what, what would really be its, its, uh, its makeup, its physiology, if you will? So you know, that's not an easy question to answer. So I, what I found here, I found an amazing source. It's an incredible source that I think a lot of people maybe have heard or at least have heard parts of it. And, um, and maybe haven't pieced it all together. Uh, and oftentimes, the more th- the things that we know, like best, are the ones that we actually know worst because we connect it to the first time you heard something, right? So the first time you studied the Torah and you read about Noah's Ark, that's still the image that you have emblazoned in your mind. And you get a little older, and you kind of rely on what what you knew as a child. Whereas what you knew as a child was, was, was you know, a child's perspective. So this Talmud that we're going to read here, it's something that we may have heard before, or at least heard parts of it before, uh, but to see the entire picture and what it paints about our soul is really dramatic. So I want to read to you guys what it says here. This is from the book of Nida, on chapter, uh, in, in page 30b. This is an entire Talmudic section that it discusses exactly our question. What is a soul before the soul has a body? Now, I wouldn't quite say body because it's, there's going to be multiple stages. There's a soul that's entirely free of any body. And then there's a soul in the body of a fetus before the body is given its materialistic instinct. And then there's the soul after birth and what changes after birth, and of course, there's the undoing of that in reverse order with death and etc. Right? But so there is a soul in a fetus. Yes, yes. So there's an entire community section of, of the status of the soul in a fetus. There's other sources that talk about the soul before the fetus, which is also interesting, very interesting. But we're gonna we're gonna focus now on what the Talmud says about a soul in the fetus. I'm gonna quote to you guys what it says. So it starts by saying, a candle is lit on his head. Child in utero, there's a candle lit on his head. Now, of course, if you take a sonogram, uh, you won't actually see a candle. So what does that mean? Question number one. Okay, so what does it say? A candle is lit on his head, and the child sees and observes from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Unlimited vision. You can see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. So if you ask the child, you put up two fingers behind your back, the child can see it, right? Of course not. What it actually means is something like this is, there's something being hinted at over here. He quotes a verse. When his candle would shine over my head, by his light I will walk in darkness. Continues the Talmud. 
So it's the first thing he knows that there's a candle lit on his head. Number two, that he sees and observes one of the world to the other end of the world. Number three, we're told that there are no days in a person's life that are as wonderful as the days in utero. What is the peak of our lives? What's the highlight, the zenith, the acme of a person's life from beginning to end, from conception to death and beyond? Where's the pinnacle? It's when we're in utero, which is, you know, typically we think you kind of, you know, maybe hit your peak in your 40s or 50s or whatever. Here we're told it's in utero. Very strange statement, of course. And then this is the one that's very famous. And they teach him the entire Torah. Child in utero is taught the entire Torah, quotes the verse. And once he's about to be born, an angel comes and strikes the child on his mouth, and he makes him forget it. It quotes the verse. The verse says in Scripture, very famous verse in Genesis, at the entrance, sin crouches. The implication is, at the entrance to the world, sin is ready to jump on a person. Why? Because they knew all of Torah and utero. As they're being born, angel comes, smacks them in the mouth. Forget the whole Torah. You don't know Torah. Well, sin is right there uh, uh, beckoning for you. Okay. Uh, no, this, that, that would be a different... I'm not an expert in Christian uh, philosophy or theology. Um, but, uh, no, this doesn't say that you're sinful. It says that you're primed for sin. You're ready, for, you're ready to sin because you don't have any Torah. If you have no direction in life, if you have no guidance, of course you're going to sin. Right? The, invariably, you're going to sin. Uh, the default status of a human, once they're already born, is that they're bound to sin. They have to counteract that. It means if you do nothing, it's a little bit like uh, someone once uh, aptly compared um, the Jewish perspective on, on the world and change and growth as uh, what my kids do in the malls. When they want to go up the stairs, they don't choose the ascending escalator. They choose the descending escalator. One's going down, and they've got to run twice as fast to get up. You've seen those kids doing that? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that a little bit, where... In order to grow, you have to not only work hard to grow, but you have to make sure that you're not regressing as well. If you don't do anything, if you just stand, and you know, the default status is that you're descending. So what the Talmud's telling us here is that because of what happens to you at birth, angel comes, smash you in the mouth, forget the whole Torah, sin is there, ready to crouch, ready to pounce on you. Because you're now in the descending escalator, and in, invariably, unless you do something, to prevent it, you're going to be sinning. Okay. Now, so let's, let's stop here. There's some more there, but I want to just stop here. So the Talmud, if we could kind of list out uh, the things that we've mentioned. The Talmud, we've mentioned around four different things. Uh, number one, there's this candle on the child's head, and the candle, and, and the child sees and observes from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Number one. Number two, that the days in utero are the pinnacle of someone's life. Number three, the child fetus is taught the entire Torah. And lastly, that the angel comes, smashes him in the mouth, forgets the whole Torah, and now he is primed to sin. That's, that's what the Gemara says, and maybe parts of that we're familiar with. Um, what, what does this all mean? What's going on over here? So in classical Talmudic fashion, the Talmud cho- chose here to mask its meaning. It doesn't proclaim everything that it's trying to say. It, very, it hints it. There's a lot of hints going on over here. Uh, obviously, if a child would have a candle on their forehead in utero, it'd be a, a really bad fire hazard. Don't you think? Kind of impossible to. And, yeah, and we've got extinguished, right, as well. Oxygen required. It w- right, so... so is it ref- when it says there's a candle on his head? But energetically, there could be. But what, what does that even mean? What does this mean, a candle on a child's head? That, that means it, it. So clearly, the Talmud is saying something, but it doesn't want us to understand it unless we investigate further. And that's a classic Talmudic tactic. And it says, I'll give you a tremendous lesson, but I'll make you work to understand it. So, what does a candle mean? 
Candles light, okay, fair. Understanding. Fair. So there's actually a verse that says, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam. The candle of Hashem is the Nishma, the Nishama, the soul of man. So if you ask for a definition of a soul, we have a verse that says, it's the soul is the candle of Hashem. Still doesn't give us a lot of detail what, what, what actually happens, but at least it's some sort of rough definition. Now, when we're told that there's a candle, and we're told that a candle is a soul, safely we can say that when the Mishnah, when the Talmud is talking about there's a candle there, it's talking about the child's soul. Now, not only is there a candle, but where is the candle? The candle's on his head. What's the head? The head is someone's consciousness, someone's recognition, someone's intellect, someone's perspective. That's the head. If I told you the candle was in his pocket, you'd say, he has a candle, but he's not referencing his candle right now. If I told you the candle was buried in one of his arteries in his lead, you would say, there's no way he knows where the candle is or what the candle is doing or the influence of the candle. Doesn't really, doesn't really have a tremendous influence on him. But if it's on his head, well, then it's, it's right there. It's present. It's, it's at the forefront of his being. But, but the point is, is that it's not, his connection to the divine is not something that's hidden from him. Now, I did a little trick on you guys. Sorry. I tricked you because when I told you the verse that says, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam, I only gave you half the verse. Classic. What's the end of the verse? The soul, the, 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 the candle of Hashem is the soul of man. And the verse ends, It searches the innards of someone's gut, someone's stomach. So if you ask the verse, what is the soul of man? Well, it's the candle of God. Where is it? It's deep within them, in their stomach, searching the innards. You ask our our Talmud, what's, what, you know, what's the soul? Talmud says, well, the soul is the candle of Hashem. Check. But where is it? It's in the head. It's right there in the forefront. It's not some deep within them. It's, it's there. It's present. So, I think an interesting takeaway from this, and this is essentially the theme of the entire Talmud here, is that what actually exists the soul that the child has in Euro, it's the same candle that we have as born humans. But the difference is that the soul is in his head. It's right there. It's the primary driving influence of the child's consciousness, to whatever degree the child has consciousness. But for us, our soul is of secondary importance. We have it, but it's within us. It's not in our head. Our head has all the other stuff are in our head. It's possible for someone to live their entire lives once they're already born without even recognizing that they have a soul or tending to it, nurturing it, sustaining it, engaging with it, connecting to it. It's possible. You could be totally physical once you're born. Once you're born, it's possible to totally neglect and ignore your soul. It's within you. You, you don't even know that you have... Uh, uh, a large intestine and a small intestine. and You know that? Yeah, you know that maybe theoretically, but you, you've never seen it before. You know it's there. Have you seen it? Most people haven't. Maybe you've had a surgery, you have. Oh, you see, but of your own? Okay, maybe. So most, so but yeah, but it's, it's, it's certainly not at the forefront of your, of your consciousness. Think about our soul now. It's, it's like just clinging to the middle of our... Uh, esophagus, or uh, it's near our spleen. It, yeah, it's there. We, we maybe are theoretically, intellectually aware of it, but it's certainly not in our head, taking our headspace at the forefront of our perspective. So there's this shift that happens from when the, the candle's in the head till the candle is demoted to being searching within the innards of man. 
Yes. Betan. Betan means stomach or gut or innards. Very interesting. Yeah, and when you say, like, my gut instinct, it's because you're really using your, your mind. That's very interesting. And there's more sources about this. Very interesting sources. Like the Talmud, for example, uh, compares in one other location uh, the placement of the soul within a person to someone's kidneys. It's like deep within them, but still accessible and still can provide a lot of clarity. So, so this is interesting. I want to kind of explain why this is. Um, so if a soul is clarity, like you guys mentioned, if a soul is the candle of God, the soul also gives us tremendous vision, clarity, right? You could see from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Now, what does that mean? That's a separate question. Like, to see, like What exactly does that mean? What is this vision? It's, it's a hard question to answer. It's not so clear. But what I'll tell you is, that if you want an actual example of what this looks like, uh, Adam, another, another Talmud says that Adam uses the exact same verbiage, the exact same words. Adam was from one end of the world to the other end of the world. So there's a link between Adam, before Adam sinned, what he was like, and then when he sinned, he was changed, so to speak. It's almost as if Adam, even though he was born, he was created, he had a candle on his head, so to speak. He sinned, and therefore the candle on the head, seen from one of the world to the other, all that was changed, and he became a human like us. But that happens to us all internally at, you know, at uh, gestation to birth. That same shift happens. Now, um, so what happens? The child knows the whole Torah. As they're about to be born, there's an angel comes, smacks them in the mouth, makes them forget it all. So at birth is this, number one, the candle gets taken from the head uh, and put placed within someone. Number two, the vision ends. You don't see from one end of the world to the other end anymore. Uh, the Torah is forgotten. All that happens at birth. Now, the Talmud brings a source for it, a source from Genesis we mentioned, at the entrance, at the entrance of the world, sin crouches. Right? You forget the Torah, you're, you're now primed to sin. What do you guys to hold that thought here? Hold the thought for a little bit. There's another statement in the Talmud, and this will answer several questions that were raised. The Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 91b, has a series of dialogues, trying to understand exactly at what point in someone's development do they A, get a soul, and B, get a Yetzirah. Yetzirah is another critical character in our life's story. And the Talmud says, when does the child get the the soul, get the neshama? Ultimately, the Talmud concludes that the child gets the neshama at conception. Whether or not this is relevant to the abortion discussions is interesting. Because if you want to define man as a soul, well, the soul exists already before birth, clearly. Um, so child gets the soul, the candle, the clarity at conception. Asks the Talmud, when does a child get a Yetzirah? When does that happen? It's the next question. So the Talmud says it happens at birth. I have a question. Go ahead. So I have a daughter with Down syndrome. Yes. When she was born, people told me that she was born with a perfect soul. Yes. Is Everyone's born with a perfect soul. Wow. I'm saying soul is perfect. It, Yeah, they, yeah, these these are these are very very special souls, very special souls. But special souls means the the degree of power that a soul has versus the degree of perfection are different. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So 
Um, for some, a soul to be perfect, all souls are perfect. But not all souls are great. Like the soul of Moses was a great soul, and it was perfect. He had them both. You know? uh, but our souls, we start off life as with perfect souls. The Almighty gives us a perfect soul. The Almighty doesn't, refer- doesn't give us a refurbished one. Even if it's refurb- refurbished, it's factory refurbished. Right? It's, it's, it's like refurbished from the manufacturer. Um, so a great soul, yeah, of course, is, uh, you know, it's tremendously inspiring. Well, tell them how they know that. Are they prophets, people that told you? Everybody. How do they know? What does it mean to be an old soul? Does a soul, soul's age? No, I think when people say that, they're referring to maybe a reincarnated soul. Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's very hard for us, simple people, to try to figure out, to try to mm-hmm. identify. Right. The, I think that's what they Yeah, I don't know how people said that. It might be true. It's possible. I'm just, I, I am not skilled in that arena of determining the age of souls. Um, I, I think it's fairly well accepted that souls can get recycled. Um, I don't know. Um, but yes, it's, it's interesting. It's possible. I, I don't know how to do this. Like, I, I haven't found any sources that talk about how to... Uh, clearly, this thing exists where souls are, you know, souls are different, souls are more special, less special. Um, and, you know, we're told, like, uh, Elijah's soul is the same soul as Pinchas, Phineas. If the Talmud says it, well, then we could trust the Talmud. They knew how to do these kinds of things. The people that wrote the Talmud were people that were studying Sefer Yetzirah and were able to create animals out of studying Torah and eat those for Shabbos. So two rabbis were told in the Talmud. Every Friday they would study together. They would study Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, allegedly written by Abraham. Not a bad, uh, not a bad author. Pretty good record. And when they would study it, they would create a little animal, a little cow, and eat that cow every Friday night. That's what I have for dinner. Those people, people who, who could do that, we could safely trust when they say which, you know, they, they trace a soul back to its roots. People, simple people like us, you know, will have to subside with whatever we're, we're, we're told uh, in the sources. Uh, so the sources here uh, is talking about the Yetzirah. So Yetzirah happens at birth. So we have this interim period. If you look at us now, once we're already born, we have both a soul and a Yetzirah. <coughs> but during this interim period of a child in utero, they have a soul, but they do not have a Yetzirah. Not bad, not bad if you can have it, right? <laughs> now, says the Talmud, how do I know? How do I know? that a child only gets a Yetzirah at birth? So quotes a verse. A verse in Genesis. A very famous verse. The verse that it quotes is the same verse that our Talmud quotes as to why a child forgets the Torah at birth. At the entrance, sin crouches. From the fact that the Talmud is using the same verse to teach us two separate uh, happenings, a, that a child gets the Yetzirah. B, that a child forgets the whole Torah. That actually tells us that those two things are actually related. They're both from the same source. At the entrance, sin crouches, teaches us both of those things. Do you know why? The answer is because only one thing actually happens at birth. Let's dial back the clock here. Child at conception, they have a soul. The soul... Is an unhindered soul. It's a soul which is the candle of Hashem. It gives the child clarity. It gives the child Torah. It's the best times. There's nothing stopping the soul. The soul is just uh, unhindered. As the child's about to be born, an angel comes and smacks him on the mouth. Is that a place you're supposed to smack people? 
right? Child, you want to make the child forget Torah. Forget the, if, you want, if you had to make an imagery of forgetting something by swiping it, what would you do? You'd swipe the head probably, right? Or if the candle's on top of the head, maybe extinguish the candle. He's smacking him on the mouth. What's happening with the smacking on the mouth? The answer is, what the angel is actually doing with smacking the child on the mouth is inserting in the child a Yetzirah. That's what's happening. But once the child gets the Yetzirah, then by default, their soul is going to be demoted. It's going to be taken from the top of the head and placed within the inerts, and the Torah that it had is forgotten from the child as well. If your candle is in your head, you know the candle. If the candle is Torah, you know the Torah. If that is removed from your consciousness, place in your pocket or place in your innards, well, the Torah is still there, the soul is still there, the candle is still there, just inaccessible to you. So essentially, only one thing happens at birth. The child gets the Yetzirah. Yetzirah is the counterbalance, counterweight to the, to the soul. And suddenly the soul's influence is muffled. It can no longer broadcast its influence via Torah, via vision, via all the things that were described. And now, now you're a human. Now you're conflicted. Now you have to live a life. Now you have to grapple between opposing internal forces one, a very powerful spiritual soul, and number two, a very powerful, physical, materialistic Yetzirah. And your life goal is going to be to really undo what happened to you at birth. If you think about it. If you could find a way to reverse the curse of birth and go back to those great times, those, that pinnacle, that apex, that acme, of what it was like to have a soul that was not hindered by the Yetzirah, well, then you'd be the most successful because you're just reinstating the soul in its proper perch on top of your head. If you could do that, well, that's, that's perfection. That's Moses. That's what Moses did. What do we know about Moses? He accepted the Ten Commandments. Well, of course. The greatest human of all time, right? But we also know, very interestingly, about Moshe, that his, when he came down from the mountain second time, he, his face was a glow. Glow, light, it was bright. Do you know why? Moshe took the candle, put it back on his head. That's his greatness. People couldn't look at that candle. Because it's not just any candle, it's the candle of Hashem. If the candle of Hashem is right there in Moshe's face, the people couldn't look at him. He had to wear a mask to cover it over. How did he get a candle on his face? Well, we could do the same thing. We also once had a candle on our face as well. We had that. We lost it at birth. Can we reclaim it is the question of our life. Can we reinstitute the way, the way things were prior? Can we too bring our candle back to supremacy over our consciousness? Moses did it. Can we do it? We can, but what does that mean? It means you've got to fight the Yetzirah. And the Yetzirah is a formidable foe. It is not easy. That's what life's about. By the way, what's Torah? What is Torah? Torah is a battle plan to defeat your Yetzirah. That's what it is. Says the Talmud, Barasi Yetzirahara, the Mahdi says, I made, I created a Yetzirah. Barasi Torah Talmud, I created the Torah as an antidote. What is Torah? Torah is a comprehensive battle plan of defeating, dismantling, decimating, and annihilating Yetzirah, and thus restoring the soul to its purity and primacy. That's what Torah is. You see how it all works out together nicely. You had an unhindered soul, it was wonderful, best of times. You have a Yetzirah. You're afflicted. You're cursed. You got a smack on your mouth. You have a wound. You have an injury. Okay, can we fix that? Can we remedy it? Yeah, we can with Torah's help. And that's what Torah is. Torah is man's instruction manual, tools for undoing what happened to them at birth, undoing their 
demotion of the Yetzirah, to reinstate it, to reinstitute it as the chief primary force of influence in your life by removing the obstacle that's called the Yetzirah. As simple as that. Adam did not have a Yetzirah. That's exactly the point. Okay, so, but if he didn't, then why did he eat from the wrong tree? Oh, why did Adam eat from the wrong tree? That's a good question. But what's clear is, um, you look at Rashi. Rashi says it's very clear. Actually, so was Rashi yesterday. Interesting you asked. Adam did not have a Yetzirah. He did not know good and evil. He had no internal influences for good and evil. When Adam ate the Yetzirah, they ate from the Yetzadas, from the tree of, 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 of knowledge, good and evil, he did it even though it was ludicrous for him to do it. He didn't have a drive to do it, a passion to do it. He had the same passion to eat from the Eitzadas, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, like you would have to jump into a, a bonfire. You could do it, theoretically. You have the choice, right? But why would you want to do that? It's totally hampering you, right? Now, the reason why Adam did it is because Adam wanted this conflict. When Adam, the second Adam, ate from the tree of knowledge, the Yetzirah came within him. And then thus he, he too was demoted. But life is wonderful because life is opportunity. A soul doesn't need to work hard to become a soul. The Almighty created it perfect. Life is meaningful specifically because of the Yetzirah. In fact, says the Talmud, what is the nickname for the Yetzirah? Right, what does the word Ra mean? Ra means evil. Says the Talmud, what's the nickname for the Yetzirah? Tov Ma'od, very good. Well, which one is it? Is it good or is it bad? Well, it's bad because it makes you want to sin. It's good because the fact that you want to sin gives you an opportunity to have meaning and purpose and greatness. If you didn't have any resistance, it's no big deal. It's the same way, the reason why the kids want to go up the down escalator. Because that's fun, that's a challenge. But, but isn't it easier to just, yeah, but what have you accomplished if you just were taken up to your destination, right? If you just had a soul, yeah, you're great, so what? What have you done to earn it? Nothing. If you have a counteracting force that provides resistance and obstacles and challenges and hindrances in your ascent, well, then your ascent matters. And that's greatness, and that's opportunity. So Adam willingly afflicted himself with a Yetzirah so that he should have those fringe benefits that the Yetzirah affords man to become great. Maybe these are not easy questions to answer. Like, um, but I, I think we typically erroneously assume that Adam was sillier than you and I, which is a mistake. You know, God didn't create uh, one man and make him totally a total doofus. There's a lot of calculation going into this. A lot of, uh, you know, it, it, it was based upon um, a vision for mankind that we're thankful for. We're thankful. We're thankful for the fact that we have opportunity. The Yetzirah is called Tov Mode. It's very good because it's opportunity. Yeah, but it, it's it's a problem to be afflicted. But when you're afflicted, you have you have an opportunity to become great. As a result, so um, I want to finish off here with a last statement uh, from that particular Talmud. Oh, one more thing. The angel hits him on his mouth. Why mouth? Why would the mouth be the conduit by which the Yetzirah will be inserted into man? Correct, and even more. The Yetzirah being introduced to man is a re- calibration, reframing of what man really is. Man prior... Just got a soul, just spiritual. Now you have the physical component being introduced, and now there's a fusion of good and evil, of 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 righteousness, of spirituality in the form of the soul, 
and physicality and materialism and the mundane in the form of the Yetzirah. So, human is a fusion of those two. There's one part of us, the touch point between the physical and the spiritual is, is, is speech. Speech is partially physical, but it's also partially spiritual. It's physical because you kind of you have to use your physical capacities to do it. You, know, you have to use the guttural and your teeth and your tongue and your lips and whatever. But it's also it's also very hard to you can't see it. It's very hard to kind of define what it is. It's sound waves. It's like invisible stuff. Like our soul is invisible to us as well. So. It's a fusion of those two, and thus, when we're told that there's this marriage of soul and body, that's always going to be through the mouth. So, smack them in the mouth, introduce the Yetzirah, soul and body, physical and spiritual, are now fused. By the way, who is the only species that can talk in, verbal, in a verbal manner? Only us. Animals can run and can walk and very physically capable, but they can't speak. You know why? Because they don't have a soul. If you could speak, that's a reflection of fusion of soul and body. Now, um, last thing here. So what happens? So what's the conclusion of to that of that Talmud? So thus, when we initially had read this Talmud, like, oh, it's nice, there's candles, you know, how romantic, child in utero, this baby, you know, a baby being born, Torah study being done, he forgets it all. It, it was all like a little bit fairy tale-ish to us. Now, we actually see that this is actually a crash course in education in what a soul is and what it does and what a Yetzirah is and what it does and what life really for us is and what we're composed of, what we're comprised of. Who are we? Well, we can say we are a soul and a body empowered by the Yetzirah. And thus, we have the capacity, the potential for greatness in the form of the candle of Hashem that we have within us, provided we could access it and unearth it from within by removing the inhibitors in the form of the Yetzirah. Like that's a nice definition of who we are and what our mission is. I want to read to you how the Talmud does this. The fetus does not leave, is not born, before they make him swear an oath. As it says... For to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear. Every child before they're born, they pronounce the following oath, or the following oath is pronounced before him. What is the oath that the fetus is made to swear? Be righteous, be a tzaddik, and don't be wicked, don't be a rasha. Okay, so far so good. And even if the entire world tells you you're righteous, consider yourself to be wicked. So, what it's telling us initially is like this. This is all connected to what it had said previously. Be righteous. Be a tzaddik. What is a tzaddik? A tzaddik is someone who is able to unearth their soul from within by neutralizing the power, the counteracting power of the Yetzirah. Don't be wicked. Right? Don't allow the down escalator to just take you to the depths of despair and sin. Don't allow that. Don't be, don't be wicked. And what if the whole world says you're a tzaddik, you're a tzaddik? Well, unless you're Moshe, which you're not, but even if you are Moshe, you always got to grow. Don't have any complacency. You know what happens if there is complacency? You start hanging down again. So never stop because that's just the nature of the beast, right? Almost quite literally, right? We have an internal beast that's dragging us down. Continues the oath. And you should know that the Almighty is pure, His angels are pure, and the soul that He placed within you is pure. If you guard it in its purity, good, If not, behold, I will take it away from you. So, we get another definition of what a soul is. A soul is pure. How pure? We don't know how pure it is, but it's being placed on the same same pedestal. The Almighty is pure, 
the angels are pure, your soul is pure. That means it's exceedingly pure. But, will it remain pure? Maybe yes, maybe no. Thus we are instructed, guard it in its purity, preserve the purity of your soul, and don't let it get sullied. How do you preserve the purity of of its soul? By constantly battling on its side of the aisle. There's a war going within you. The Yetzirah has his agenda, soul's got his agenda, and they are opposing. How do you ensure that the Yetzirah does not win and thus sully the soul? How do you do that? By working hard. Like I said, the Torah is the, the, Torah is the, is the manual of how to defeat the Yetzirah. By defeating the Yetzirah, you preserve the purity of the soul. As simple as that. As simple as it's not so easy, it's not easy, but simple. Indeed, we are given a perfect soul, but will it remain perfect? Will we preserve it? That's only if we neutralize and defend it from the incursions and encroachments and infringements of the Yetzirah. If we are complacent to do nothing, then it's going to become less pure and less pure and less pure because it's going to be taken over by the Yetzirah. Thus, I think this Talmud really illuminates for us the question that really is at the backstory of our lives. Like, who are we and what's our mission? And for us, we, we're used to seeing a lot, of, a lot of trees and not so much the forest. And this Talmud is all about the forest, all about the big picture. If you ask me, what is the role of Torah? Well, Torah is a Jewish people, it's the Jewish social um, uh, commitment it's the Jewish culture, it's the Jewish community, it's the Jewish mitzvahs, it's, it's morality. There's a lot of definitions you can give to Torah. Here we're giving the overarching core purpose of Torah, and that is to beat down the Yetzirah, to neutralize it, to guard the purity of the soul, and, and to fulfill, to allow us to fulfill the pledge, the oath that we made at birth. We all made that pledge, we all have the soul, can we access it and ensure that it's preserved in its purity. That's the only question. And how? And the only tool that we have to do that is our soul. By the way, you mentioned Adam. Did Adam have a Torah? No. You know why? Because Adam did not have a Yetzirah. Therefore, he did not need a Torah. Once he got the Yetzirah, then the only way to be successful in our life's mission, thenceforth, would be with the Torah, the tools of the Torah affords us to battle our Yetzirah. But I think this is a very good introduction to really life, I would say, uh, but certainly to a deeper, more profound, more nuanced um, scholarship and hopefully uh, behavioral integration as well, because like these are nice ideas, but the big question is, will we actually apply it in our behavior, in our life, in our principles, in our morals, in our values and priorities, that's really, that's really in our hands. But certainly, if we're going to be undertaking uh, uh, in-depth study of these you know, core ideas in, in, in Jewish life and what really the backstory behind it, I think this is a very good way to start to see really who we are, what we're made of, what we're comprised of, and thus, what is our mission, and also uh, how the Torah really fits in uh, to our mission. Um, what we haven't discussed is how does the Yetzirah work, and how does it directly oppose the soul, and how are they exact mirrors of each other. And also, of course, how does Torah neutralize the soul, but those are all the next, the next kind of steps, logical steps. At least we know what we're capable of theoretically with our soul, uh, the great heights that we can achieve with it, uh, and what the states really are of, of, our, of our life. You know, it's, it, these are pledges that we made, and, the, you know, and the, the ramifications of it are enormous. Like, if you actually look at the sources that talk about the death and the undoing of life, uh, the Talmud tells us that there's 903 different levels of death. Not, not all deaths created equal. 
Why? Because death is separation of soul from the physical. Well, we said there's going to be a band, a spectrum. If you guard the soul, then it's purity, great. If not, not so great. So where is our soul? How successful were we in upholding our pledge, our oath, our pre-birth oath? Well, that matters what our soul looks like. And to the degree that our soul is pure, the extraction of the soul is more seamless. Versus if the soul is not pure, if the soul is allowed uh, to, to wither and become less pure and become integrated with our Yetzirah, our Yetzirah is able to overwhelm it, well, then to take it out is much more difficult. The says it's 903 levels uh, of death. Because death is just, it's just the undoing of, of life. So what's life? Life, you got a soul, Yetzirah. Okay, what, what, how are you going to allow, uh, or what are you going to do to ensure that the, that the soul does not get sullied, and death is just exactly undoing that. So for example, Talmud says, the best kind of death is called Mises Nishika, which means, Nishika means kiss. And of course, like that should ring in your bell, like if the soul is placed on our mouth by smacking it into us at birth, then if you just undid that, you know, in, in a way that the soul was retained its purity, you just take it out of the mouth the same way that you did prior. Simple, right? If you were successful, you guard the soul in its purity, then how do you undo birth the same way you made birth? Right? You, got, you, got, you just extract it out. Talmud says that that's comparable to pulling a hair out of a glass of milk. No resistance, it's all smooth, no problem. What's the worst kind of death? That's called astara. And astara is, uh, Talmud says, is that you have a ball of wool, a tuft of wool, and you have thorns that got caught up into that. And you have to extract the thorns that are all embedded deeply into this ball of wool. Well, that's not so easy. You gotta pull, and it gets all stuck in there like a steel wool, right? It's stuck, you gotta pull really hard. And once you pull it, well, little bits of the thorns are gonna stay in there, little bits of the wool are going to be pulled out. It's really messy and... Uh, that is indeed the separation of our soul and our, our body because that's just who we are. Like we, we, cho- we, cho- we choose what kind of death we're going, to, we're going to have by what kind of life we're going to live. So these very, very powerful ideas and really get, you know, gives us a, um, a, an introduction onto, uh, I think, advanced, advanced engagement in, uh, in, uh, in Jewish learning and hopefully Jewish behavior as well. Um, is there any questions? Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. I'm perplexed by your last comment. We choose the our kind of death by the life we live. Exactly. It's 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 a little bit uh, unsettling, but it's. I lost a friend this morning. Ay ay ay. It's hitting home. But it's, it's no secret we're all going to die. We don't know when we're going to die, but we're, we all know that. We all know we're going to die. Everyone knows that. But the question, but what, that part is, is fixed as to exactly what circumstances that happens. Well, that's really, that is in our hands. That's where our free will comes into place. Okay, so um, I hopefully, um, hopefully next week Rabbi Cohn will be here for more, uh, more authentic Kabbalah. But this is my version of Kabbalah. So what is going to happen during the holidays? Um, are there 